Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. It's the year 1833. Charles Darwin is in Brazil on the verge of a revelation that will revolutionize science. On May 22nd, he writes a letter to his sister in England about witnessing slavery firsthand. And he's closely following the debates over the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. What a proud thing for England if she is the first European nation that utterly abolishes it, he writes. 1833 was an era of long-awaited progress and of stubborn retrenchment. It was the year Britain abolished slavery altogether, but the British Empire continued to expand, laying claim to more of the world. It was also the year the inventors of the computer met for the first time. Today on Ideas, we bring you the third installment in our series, The Shock of the New. It's a series exploring what Salman Rushdie calls hinge moments in history, moments when all must be remade, rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. Our panelists are Miriam Andrade, professor of biology at the University of Toronto and co-founder of the Canadian Black Scientists Network, Pedrick Scanlon, historian of labor and slavery at the University of Toronto, and Sandra Den Otter, Professor of British and Global History at Queen's University. This is the year 1833, Evolution and Entrenchment. So as we've done with uh, our other panels, maybe just an opening salvo from each of you, and we'll start with you, Sandra. When you think about the year 1833 and the era that it represents, before and after. Is there a story or an idea that kind of summarizes the importance of that moment in time for you? Thank you. And really wonderful to be here um, today. Yes, I guess what I would really highlight is the theme of accelerated change. I mean, we've been very comfortable now with the idea of our society experiencing rapid transformation. But in the 1830s, Britain was undergoing a transformation and a disruption of established ways of being and moving and working that was unprecedented. And I really want to underscore how transformative this was across all aspects of the British world. We think, for example, of the new ability to harness forms of technology, forms of energy that had never been used before, the creation of the steam engine that motored railways crisscrossing first Britain and then countries across Europe and across the empire, Latin America as well. The discovery of coal-powered steam engines also created an information revolution as news traveled by steamboats as people began to travel the globe. 
All these things also led to the transformation of work in factories. Manchester became a factory town which drew people in from local areas. And this transformation of technology and energy disrupted society in every form, from politics to uh, living conditions with a new understanding of the problem of poverty and new compelling questions about the nature of government. Who should control or govern this new entity? Thank you very much, Sandra. Patrick? Yeah, so I, what would it look like if you were to open the Times of London 189 years ago today, right? What, what would you see? Um, and I would argue that what you would see is an idea of freedom that we think of as natural, that we, that we live with, today coming into focus. So first of all, you would see in the pages of the Times a world of free trade and free movement, right? You would see advertisements for an, a kind of emporium of goods and services from around the world. And you could travel more or less anywhere, either by sail or by steam, right? So if you wanted to buy something from Bombay or travel to Bombay, that was available to you. So that's, that's one kind of freedom you would see. Another is a new idea of what free labor was, right? We think now a lot and worry now a lot about the future of work, um, and that was certainly a worry in 1833 as well. This was a, a world of emergent factory labor, of more and more intense wage labor, of different kinds of manufacturing, and it wasn't a world necessarily that was welcome to workers, right? So the, the world of free labor did not necessarily look like freedom to people who were earning wages. Um, and finally, if you looked in the newspaper on July 23rd, 1833, you would see that the day before, Britain's parliament had debated the Abolition of Slavery Act. It had just recently been introduced by the government, and it was a proposal to end mass enslavement for hundreds of thousands of enslaved laborers in Britain's Caribbean colonies. And if you read the debates, you would notice that the terms of the debate said something very significant about what freedom meant. Uh, so the two pillars of Britain's Abolition Act were compensation, not for enslaved people, but for the people who had claimed to own them. Um, and you would have seen debates about uh, the amount of money that slaveholders would be owed by the British government. So you would have seen MPs arguing that 20 million pounds was not sufficient and it should be increased to 30 million pounds. Um, you would also see debates about the length of time that formerly enslaved laborers would have to continue working without wages to learn how to become wage, wage laborers, a process that was known as apprenticeship. And if you looked on the 23rd of July, you would have seen that the current terms were 12 years of apprenticeship. It ended up being seven years in the final version of the act. So I think you would see in, in 1833 a kind of deceptive sort of freedom. The people who were abolishing slavery in 1833 thought that they were creating a new world, right? They, they, they thought it was a hinge moment. Uh, but the kinds of legacies of the world that, that, that slavery made were not abolished with slavery in, in 1833. Marianne. So uh, ironically for the STEM person on the uh, panel, I'm going to talk about the people and the social context uh, in 1833 to some extent. So... The people involved in some of the changes that we'll talk about include Charles Babbage, Charles Darwin, Ada Lovelace. And the interesting thing about this period in history is that uh, people who were engaged intellectually in the big questions of the time with respect to science, but also with respect to social change, engaged in social interactions or parties, salons, that had started during the Enlightenment. And the unique thing about these salons was that the host would bring together people, often regardless of class, which was very unusual at the time, regardless of gender, also very unusual at the time. And it was one of the places where women, for example, could engage in these conversations with people who were members of the Royal Society, say. And so the people who were sort of 
central to some of the changes that we'll be talking about actually would have interacted in London at these soirees. And in fact, Charles Babbage was called a lion of the social scene. <laughs> so it was a time when the nerds were kind of ruling the social scene <laughs> and were the influencers. So Charles Babbage actually met Ada Lovelace. Charles Babbage was in his 40s. He was a professor and he was a member of the Royal Society. Ada Lovelace was 17 and went to one of these parties after being presented uh, to the queen, to the king, sorry, at the time, socially. And they met at that point and she saw something there and learned things there that changed her life and that also changed our lives as we move forward. At the same time, uh, Babbage's parties were one of the places where Charles Darwin went to socialize after he returned from his voyage. In 1833, he was still on his voyage, but had sent home the first sample of fossils and his interpretation of them, and they'd been presented at Cambridge University with one of his friends writing to him to say, you are the name that is on every lip. So these soirees with these formative uh, discussions going on involve some of Charles Darwin's insight from that voyage. Thank you so much for painting such a vivid picture of what it was like back then, because part of this exercise is us trying to imagine what it was like back then and how the tectonic shifts that were happening then were are reaching into today. And so before we get to the actual year, I thought maybe it would be helpful to talk about the years preceding and what forces there are that might have played a role in bringing, you know, the, the important things that happened in 1833 into, uh, into reality. And so, uh, Sandra, I thought I'd, I'd start with you. What do you think were the most important forces that were shaping the world in the years preceding 1833? Yes, I'll just pick up on a few of those. One is that notion of liberty to follow up, Pedrick, on, on your comment and to track it back in the preceding decade, 1789, of course, was the French Revolution, and it was an age of revolution in America as well. Um, extremely vivid polemics about the nature of freedom and, uh, and like Tom Paine's common sense were being avidly read across the Atlantic world, the British Atlantic world, and inspired a radicalism and an aspiration for change. We think of the uh, philosopher Condorcet, who pictured an idea of society as it might be, in which poverty would be eradicated, in which the state was responsive to the needs, not just of uh, landed elites, but to everyone, and that aspiration was very powerfully carried forward. Also, at the same time, there was concerns about the excesses of the French Revolution, and this very much guided the 1830s. There are concerns about the collapse of British society, a real worry that it could disintegrate into the chaos of what happened in France. And this inspired some of the changes in the 1830s, we think, for example, of the Poor Law of 1834, to try to alleviate some of the worst experiences that culminated, came out of the Industrial Revolution, the poverty of, of laboring poor, both in the new cities and in rural areas. Patrick, what would you point to as being one of the most important forces? Um, so we often think in, in the 20th century about the period immediately after the Second World War as this moment of transformation in the structure of society uh, because of the devastation of the Second World War worldwide. And so I think in the 1830s, it's important to remember that in 1815, 
the Napoleonic Wars ended. Um, and we tend to think of the Napoleonic Wars, or we might tend to think of the Napoleonic Wars as a European war, but it was a global war that involved the mass mobilization of people from Asia to the Caribbean, to Europe, to North America, and included all sorts of other regional wars, the War of 1812. It was a period of, of global devastation, right? And the, the mass mobilization of hundreds of thousands of people and millions and millions and millions of dollars and pounds worth of material. And that all came to an end in 1815. And I think by the 1830s, people around the world were still feeling the consequences of living in a post-war era. And the sudden contraction of the global economy in 1815 had profound consequences for people all around the world. And so I think people in 1833 would have just lived through, you know, almost a 15-year period of, of economic depression and declining wages and uh, just a, a sense that the world was getting worse, uh, even though the reason why the world was getting worse was the conclusion of a long and bloody war. Midian, it was a very interesting time also to be a scientist. And there was a lot of experimentation with scientific concepts like vaccines, for example. I wonder what of those in that period leading up to 1833 that you think were the most or was the most consequential? Wow. Um, so as an evolutionary biologist, the ones that I feel <laughs> were the most con <laughs> consequential, um, but also because they linked to social debates at the time, do you have to do with how we understand the origin and diversity of life on Earth? And so ideas about evolution were actually longstanding. And in fact, Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a believer in evolution uh, and wrote poems actually about that. People in general, I think, were beginning to understand that things changed over time. So Lyell wrote about how over geological time that the earth was ancient, that there had been the slow accumulation of change to explain the physical features we saw, that influencing how people thought about changes in the species that we saw on earth. But no one had a mechanism for how it worked at that point. So there was the beginnings of this understanding that things might not be immutable. And that links to the social challenges of the time, because, of course, if things never change and you're on top, all good. <laughs> if you're on top and things change, mm. and some of those changes are definitely going to remove your power or your wealth, it becomes a very fraught time. Let's go back to the idea of, of how people thought about freedom and, and how that affected change mm -hmm. in 1833. That was the year, of course, that Britain abolished uh, slavery, as you both mentioned. But the movement had started a lot earlier. What is it that drove the abolition movement, Patrick? So I think... One of the problems with thinking about anti-slavery really in Britain and in the United States is its enormous complexity, right? There wasn't one particular thread of the movement that kind sure. of un unlocked it. First of all, it's important to note that uh, enslaved people were against slavery more, you know, from its from its inception, <laughs> right? So, so when I when I discuss the the, the anti-slavery movement, I'm I'm thinking about a sort of movement among free workers and, yes. and, and free people in, in Britain and in the United States. Who are also presumably not slave owners. Uh, hmm. You'd be surprised. One thread that I could pick out is the thread of, of, of gradualism, right? I, I think that that is probably the most important feature of at least the British anti-slavery movement that's, that's often overlooked. I mean, if you think about the way that Britain remembers the abolition of slavery and the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, it's often in these kind of grandiose terms. You know, you imagine William Wilberforce standing on the, on the floor of the House of Commons, kind of flourishing a petition, slamming it down on the desk. That did happen, but it happened in 1792, 
right? And the slavery, the slave trade was only abolished in, in 1807. And that debate in 1792 ended in a motion that, that carried through parliament declaring that Britain would gradually abolish the slave trade, not mass enslavement itself, but the slave trade. And so built into the anti-slavery movement was an idea that whatever happened, however completely people agreed that slavery was, was morally wrong and, and repugnant, its abolition had to be very, very gradual so as not to disrupt all of the industries that relied on the labor of, of enslaved people. And the Haitian Revolution was Britain's great counterexample, right? The, the, the idea that, that people could overthrow slavery rather than gradually abolish it was, I think, very uh, terrifying to, to, to British policymakers. Anti-slavery wasn't proposing equality. It wasn't proposing civil rights. It was proposing an end to slavery and the continuation of the colonial sugar industry uh, under a regime of wage labor. And it, it wasn't proposing breaking up Britain's empire in the Caribbean, but preserving it uh, against the possibility of, of, of insurrection by, by enslaved people. Sandra, you want to add something? Yeah, that's um, that's really fascinating, that emphasis on amelioration. And I think it's a theme that's really coming forward in our conversation already. We've talked a lot about the acceleration of change and disruption, but powerful forces of continuity as well. So one other example of that is that the slave lobby, the anti-slavery lobby, after the abolition of slavery in 1833, did find other forms of slavery that were happily continuing under British rule. For example, forms of domestic enslavement that had been reinscribed in 1833 at the same time as the House of Commons was meeting to abolish a slavery across the British Empire. A month earlier, the debates in the House of Commons were about the continued charter of the East India Company. And there, there was a discussion about slavery. And the conclusion was, no, let's leave slavery in place in India because to change it would be too disruptive. It would unravel the social fabric. And this goes back to that fear of too much social upheaval that goes back to the French Revolution. I'm going to come back to this theme in a minute when we actually turn to the actual year, but I want to set the stage a little bit more for 1833 by talking a little bit about the colonial uh, waters that were being swum in at the, t at the time. So in, outside of Europe, in Latin America, um, there's a series of wars of independence against colonial domination in the Punjab, uh, wars in India against the, against the British, and there's, of course, the rise of the powerful Zulu Empire in Southern Africa. Is there any sense at the time in which you might consider all of that the beginning of the end of empire at the time, Sandra, if you don't mind? Yeah, me? that's. I really like the way you framed that. That's, um, that's a really imaginative framing. And I think what it captures well is the fragility of British rule. And there's a lot of debate about the nature of the British Empire and how secure it was. Certainly at this period, um, the late 18th century, early 19th century, it felt nothing but secure for colonial powers um, in vast parts of the world. So sometimes it's described as a thin red line that the British held um, in parts of conquered territory. Remember, too, the context of European wars that Pedrick mentioned at the outset were being fought in these colonial spaces as well between competing colonial powers. In India, one of the oddities is the operation of the East India Company. 
Uh, it's a joint stock trading company. It's a, a major corporation, actually, that was responsible for the conquest and consolidation of most of South Asia, not the British state. Um, but the British state gained tremendously from the operations of the East India Company in this territory. And there was a sense of panic, um, for the most part, amongst East India Company officials who felt that they were hanging on by their fingers. So in some sense, I think you could say um, that it was an anticipation of that final period of post-colonialism, though to do so, I think it's really important to emphasize um, the way conquest shaped um, in violent ways the lives of, of, of ordinary men, women, and children, millions of those in numbers before the end of that period. Okay. So going back to the picture you painted, Midian, of what was going on in 1833, Charles Darwin, as you said, was um, somewhere off the coast of uh, South America and his exploration ship, the Beagle. Can you just talk more precisely about what was new about what he was doing at the time? So their journey um, all over the world, really, uh, was one uh, in which he was hired, as, as many of you will know, as a naturalist, essentially. So he was collecting fossils, he was collecting specimens of organisms, um, and trying to understand why they were diverse, where they lived, and also how they related to the fossils in the area uh, at the time. And when he was in South America in particular, he also again butted up against these social issues because he witnessed the brutality to slaves, uh, in enslaved people in, in those areas, and wrote extensively about it and about how the version of slavery that they were largely familiar with in England at the time was a sanitized one, right? Uh, enslaved people in, in wealthy homes, for example, as opposed to on plantations or elsewhere. And there was very little writing initially about the actual brutality of the practices. He made it clear how repulsive he found them. Uh, he said, in fact, it made his blood boil. And he even said he kind of wishes that in South America they would see them overthrow in the way that they had in Haiti, mm. uh, the people who were enslaving them. Now, having said that, there's a very big difference between being an abolitionist and being a racist. <laughs> it's quite possibly possible to be both. Um, and there's a lot of debate about, about Darwin with respect to, to those issues. And what did become very important is the way in which his ideas were either used uh, in service of the abolitionist cause or actually against the abolitionist Which cause. was the stronger argument at the time? At the time, I think the, arg the strongest argument was in favor of the abolitionist cause because at the time, people were not entirely sure that dark-skinned people were actually the same race. And so his idea that everyone came from a single origin, monogenism, not genes as in genetics, but as in origin, uh, it was called monogenism, and polygenists, who thought that maybe the so-called races of man had originated independently, that was fuel for continued enslavement because, of course, they're not quite the same as us. So initially, it helped the abolitionists. Okay, we're all from one origin, but it very quickly shifted into progress, that natural selection means we are getting better over time, and obviously civilized people are better than these people we've been colonizing, um, and obviously people who aren't able to have what we have are just not as good as us and should fall away. So there was a lot of discussion about extinction of some races of man, or extinction of some men and women, or extinction of some um, social systems. After the abolition of slavery in 1833, 
Kalinda, stick fighting accompanied by music and dancing, became an important part of emancipation celebrations across the Caribbean. But British colonial authorities decided those celebrations were too disorderly, in other words, too uncivilized. In 1880, British police captain Arthur Baker stopped a procession in Trinidad and demanded the revelers give up their sticks and torches. They did, but the following year, masqueraders and stick fighters came back, prepared for a fight. That battle is still reenacted at carnival celebrations today. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. Here's an etude by Chopin, just the kind of music that was popular at soirees in London and Paris in 1833. And it was at one such soirée that Ada Lovelace met Charles Babbage, and they began a conversation that would change history. This is the shock of the new, the year 1833. Median Andrade, Sandra Den Otter, and Pedrick Scanlon in conversation at the Stratford Festival about a hinge moment in history, a year and an era that still resonates with us. Can you talk a little bit more about Babbage and Ada Lovelace and the significance of what they did. So Charles Babbage was was brilliant, invented many, many, many things, everything from a cow catcher to this difference machine, which was a, me- a cow catcher, right? Which was a mechanical device to allow computation. He had been so frustrated by the handwritten trigonometric and algebraic um, tables, which people use for navigation, for engineering, that he wanted to see something that would not make mistakes. So this device um, was a mechanical device with through gears would allow you to calculate things without error. And it apparently was without error, uh, which was quite incredible. But when he had these parties, so he was um, wealthy, brilliant, and terrible with people. Terrible with people. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, he offended a lot of people, and because of labor disputes, uh, wasn't able to finish the building of his first uh, difference machine, difference engine, sorry, but got a piece of it. And he kept that in the corner of his salon. And so when he had those parties, he would actually demonstrate it. And so Ada Lovelace saw that and was um, really taken with it. Having studied mathematics, she offered her mind to him, essentially. And so in the end, she wrote a paper or translated a paper that had been written about his machine by actually someone who later became the prime minister of, of Italy, which is interesting in and of itself. And she wrote, translated this paper, but then wrote an, uh, uh, almost uh, twice as much material in which she described an algorithm 
an algorithm being independent of what is put in and what comes out, here are the set of instructions that allows computation to happen. Mm. And so that was considered to be the first computer program. And Babbage then wrote the machine. And during that period, they were interacting a lot. Actually, their, their correspondence looks like email of collaborators. It's actually quite interesting. <laughs> Things underlined and, you know, no, and people getting angry and all that sort of thing. Um, and so what they gave to the world was both, uh, in Babbage's side, this incredibly detailed, initially 25,000-part machine, later simplified to 8,000 parts. And from her case, both the algorithm and the insight that you could apply an algorithm to anything to creating music, to weaving tapestries, uh, to writing potentially poetry, uh, not just mathematical calculations. So that was one of her big contributions. And so the two of them were friends, I think, for their entire life until she died at a young age. So we can blame them for the possibility of AI making music for us now today, right? <laughs> uh, and the computer, of course, has changed everything uh, in, our, in our world today. What parallels do you see between the shifting nature of work today and how work was changing in the 1830s, you know, during the Industrial Revolution. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. So I think it's just to try to ground things in the material world. So I was just in London uh, a few days ago, um, and I got a chance to see one of Babbage's prototypes. And when you look at Babbage's prototype of his, of his difference engine, one of his first computers, you can see, and this is by design, that it looks a lot like a power loom. In fact, Babbage was inspired by a particular kind of power loom called a jacquard loom that was used to make embroidery on, on an industrial scale. And you can imagine from the point of view of someone working in a cotton factory, or even in fact, somebody working on board a Royal Navy ship, right? One of the reasons why Babbage was heavily financed by the British government was because it would take a lot of the legwork out of doing complex mathematical computations. And the people who used to do those mathematical computations would no longer be doing the same kind of high status work that they had once been doing on board a ship. So I think one of the terms that my, my colleagues in, in industrial relations at, at, at the university use is de-skilling. The way that automation creates jobs, it certainly creates plenty of work. You know, there, was lo- there were lots of jobs to go around, uh, but they weren't necessarily good jobs. The late anthropologist David Graeber called them bullshit jobs, right? There are, there are <laughs> a lot of bullshit jobs now but the number of good jobs is rapidly decreasing. And I think that people in the 1830s would have experienced that as well. Control over your workspace, control over the time you were at work, right? People who worked in cottage industries churning out cotton worked a lot, but they could work on their own schedule. But when you worked at a cotton factory, you showed up when the bell rang and you left when it rang again. And so I think in that sense, the way that machines dictate the pace of our labor in the present is something that we have in common with with workers in the 1830s. I think the difference in 2022 is that it's not just industrial workers whose working lives are shaped by the pace of machines. That sphere has expanded and expanded and expanded in the nearly 200 years since 1833. This time that we're talking about is an era where we see a surge in globalization and empire building. You know, the Ottoman Empire 
is expanding and the quarter of the world is controlled by the British Empire. How do you make sense of the fact that this is an era of reform and new rights protections? We're talking about freedom and all these things, but also it's an era of high colonialism. How is that possible, though, to exist at once? Um, so when it was useful for anti-slavery to be a tool for colonial expansion for the British Empire, it certainly was. Um, one of the first places I worked on as a graduate student, the British colony of Sierra Leone, was founded on anti-slavery principles in the 1790s. Uh, and became the basis for a series of military campaigns against forts that were trading in enslaved people, but the campaigns against them were intended to expand the power, the commercial power of the colony, not necessarily to abolish slavery. So when slavery, when institutions of slavery that were not created by Europeans were useful, they were tolerated. Uh, when they became less useful, they were abolished, and the movement to abolish them became a lever to expand the footprint of colonial power, right? The famous kind of Berlin conference in the, in the 1880s when European powers divided up basically the entire African continent into a series of new colonies. Britain's colonies were claimed in the name of anti-slavery. And, you know, 20 years earlier when Livingston was sailing up the Congo River, he was doing it in the name of anti-slavery treaties. And so I think anti-slavery was an all-purpose justification for imperial expansion. And I, I personally doubt the, the kind of deep sincerity of, of, of uh, colonial officials. So extending into the years after 1833, you know, within a few decades, we have an, you know, a, a large outbreak of revolutions around the world. We have uh, across Europe, we have in Latin America, uh, the Indian mutiny. Sandra, what's kind of fueling this backlash? Why is it happening then? Well, I think that we see that the disruption that we imagine happened with the revolutions at the end of the 18th century were um, followed by periods of retrenchment. Um, and so the retrenchment meant that those wonderful utopian visions that had been imagined um, at the end of the 18th century had not led to meaningful change. Within India, the rebellions of 1857 and 1858 were a really remarkable pushback against the advent of British rule. And it's important to see that this, was, um, this wasn't an isolated event. We've talked about um, resistance to British conquest throughout the early 19th century, but this was the most um, extreme version of that, and it led actually to the ending of the East India Company's role in India, and, and its charter was not renewed as a result of, of that, 1859. And it did lead also to an intensification of much more hardline, much more interventionist role of Britain in India, because there was such a concern about the fragility of continued rule um, that your first mm -hmm. question about India indicated. And, and we're talking about different parts of the world where these revolutions are happening, but I'm wondering if there is some conclusion we can come to by looking at all of them in the aggregate in the sense that they may have set the stage for these large conflagrations, these war, you know, the two world wars. Is that fair to say? Well, I think that that very basic human desire to create more equitable societies um, really fueled many of these outbreaks of violence. The disruption of the major European powers in the 20th century 
um, go back, obviously, to its roots in the 19th century, where so much of the, the foundation was, was laid for this. But I think that in this period, we see a greater and greater desire to move away from the ad hoc relations that major power brokers may have established through their elite status to turn more to institutions, more to rule of law. So we think across the British Empire, for example, the creation of, of law codes that were attempting to create order. There's a wonderful book um, by historian Lauren Benton called The Rage for Order. And this appetite to try to um, bring this unruly landscape globally into codes of law, into systems of law, into institutions that could provide safer governmentality. But as soon as that's underway, the question is, then what is the stake of ordinary men and women in it? And the movement towards female suffrage, for example, that didn't really reach a conclusion until the early 20th century was just one element of that. Yeah. So the underlying question to all this, again, is how does change happen? And how? what can we learn from these years about how or why it happened? So maybe, Anne, I know it's a big question, but mm. what is, when you look back at what we know about 1833, what have we learned from that year that could help us answer the question of how does change happen? I think uh, what Sandra said at the beginning about a period of great change and, and disruption is critical. Change and disruption seem to be linked. And that's one of the reasons why I think we can draw a line to where we are now. Uh, a period of societal disruption that turns on its head everything that you assume to be true. It's a perfect time to start thinking about, okay, rather than justifying things based on what happened before this disruption, let's think about, as you say, this utopia that we may want to create. And maybe it's not a utopia, but what are the problems that we could solve as we move out of this disruption into a new normal, for want of a better mm -hmm. term? So I do think we're at a critical moment, and I, uh, it is always my hope that people will see, will remove the rose-colored glasses from how things were in before times and think about what it means for what we want to build as we move forward. Patrick, just again, the lessons from how the mechanism of change and what we can draw from those. I mean, one thing I would emphasize is that a lot of people living in the 1830s thought that they were living in a time that was going to produce a radical break with the past. Certainly the British abolitionists thought that in the debates about the abolition of slavery. They thought they were ending slavery entirely, ending its legacies as well as its existence. They thought they were living in a new time. But one thing that I think we ought to be cautious about when we think about history in the present and about our own relationship to the past is that these moments of transition don't erase the thing that happened before. They obscure it sometimes. Uh, they may change our perspective on it, but they don't do away with it. And so all of the world of the 18th century of, of, of exploitation, of mass enslavement, but also of um, enlightenment, uh, at, at least in Europe, you know, that didn't disappear in the 1830s, but people sometimes thought it did, right? And, and I think that that's, that's a lesson that we can probably take with us moving forward to, to not, not be deluded by the idea that we're in a revolutionary moment. Sandra. 
Yes, I, I I would endorse that. And and even the term that we use, industrial revolution, historians really dispute the word revolution at all. And when they look back at the record, say, oh, well, it was more continuity, it was evolution. But there's something so tantalizing about talking about disruption, about dynamic change, that we're fixed on that more than these lines of continuity. And also, I think when we think about 1833, we're really capturing ideas that that did have profound impact, but there were lots of ideas, practices, episodes that we have lost, that, that were false starts or disjunctions that, that ended and, and haven't continued. So we living in the present don't have that perspective to determine what elements of change in our society are going to be those most lasting ones that an audience a hundred years from now sitting in this room, um, perhaps, because it's a beautiful room or elsewhere may be talking about. Is it only in looking backwards that we can determine how disruptive a change was or how uh, influential or lasting? I mean, the historians would have a view on this. <laughs> well, I mean, if we, if we read the Times for 1833 as Pedrick's opening comments indicated there definitely was a perception that this was a time of remarkable change and transformation. So that lived experience in the time recognized the disruption. Um, it may not have seen as fully as we can, looking back, the extent of that change, and also those elements of continuity and the hollowness of some of the proclamations of moral redemption that we hear at this time period actually were. But um, if we think of poetry, Lord Tennyson's comments about the nature of change, they, there was a perception that this was a, a whirlwind of change yeah. that was overturning experience. The one thing that really comes through in this discussion, and we could have talked about for hours about this, is the fact that there was a, a, quite an interplay, maybe unprecedented, between changes in science and changes in social progress and politics. And I wondered if you, Marianne, to start with, to what extent you think those two worlds are still shaping each other in the way that they did so profoundly in 1833? Um, that's one of the things that I'll have to say. It's hard to say while you're sitting yeah. uh, in that moment. Certainly, we've seen a lot of interplay with respect to the measures that are taken by the government and whether they're informed by science and whether people believe the science. and The COVID measures, you mean? The COVID measures, yeah. right? So we've certainly seen that interplay here. I don't know how important it was in the end, other than people, regardless of which side they're on, have something to latch onto that, to justify their views. And I'd have to say, looking back historically, that's one of my disappointments, is that this idea that I said that people often start from where they want to end up mm -hmm. and then decide how to interpret things from that perspective. So in that sense, science is often involved in these issues because people use it to justify whichever side they, they wish to, to be on. Very true. Patrick? I mean, it's also worth noting that this era of the 1830s was one of the first times in history when science was informing social policy in a meaningful way. Uh, earlier in the discussion, Sandra mentioned the poor laws in, in the poor law reform in 1834 in Britain, which was heavily influenced by the economist Thomas Robert Malthus, famous for uh, the principle, his, his essay on the principle of population, where he argued that, you know, population rose much more quickly than food supply. And so inevitably, the main check on population would be crises either of subsistence or disease uh, that would lead to population crashes. And for people designing social policy in the 1830s, the lesson of Malthusian economic science 
was to have as ungenerous a social policy as possible. Because in some sense, if you made, if you created a robust social welfare state, all you were doing was sort of delaying an inevitable collapse in population. So why spend the money when you know what the consequence would be? Uh, in, in, and and, and it's, it's worth thinking about all the different kinds of information science and scientific endeavor that went into that moment of policy making demography geology in terms of the the human evolution anthropology all being kind of digested and then or maybe half digested by policymakers and then turned into this universally despised social policy in the 1830s so that's something to to bear in mind too when we think about the emergence of of expertise and the influence of experts on policy making something that's really relevant in the present I think that that science is absolutely critical here, science and technology, because if we look at why industrialization and urbanization and the whole growth of global capital accumulation started in 1830s in Britain before moving on to Japan, America, and Germany, it was some peculiar constellation of circumstances which made, and your your comments initially indicated the centrality of that scientific discourse was absolutely critical and a desire and an openness and a flexibility to look at innovative practices. So we could ask, why did this not happen in China? And there are good reasons why there wasn't that same climate or openness to innovation. And that meant that um, Beijing, which with London was the largest global city in 1800, by the end of this period had been surpassed by major other European cities in Osaka, for example, in Japan and Tokyo, to other major urban powerhouses. One last thing I'm curious about is is the whole question of who am I or what is a citizen? How much of the discussion that was going on in 1833 you think we're still having right now? Perhaps even more so because if we think of the information revolution and the advent of AI, the question of what is it to be distinctively human has gained um, a really poignant importance for us all. Marianne, anything to add to that? Uh, That's hard for me, because if you look back at 1833 and the period after that, of course, people who looked like me weren't citizens. Um, And so as these things were changing, and as there were these changing laws and changing protections, they left out entire of course, groups of people, indigenous people, people of color, in a lot of cases, women who couldn't vote, um, and and as you say, people who were poor. So the question of who is a citizen and and what constitutes humanity is, is certainly still evolving. What constitutes humanity in a real sense in the current context has been hard for people to see that there are differences still that draw that that started from practices of enslavement practices of colonial uh, um, brutality that still inform how our structures look today mm-hmm. and I would say that's one way in which I have seen a big change uh, there's no denying that the last couple of years have expanded the range of people willing to listen to those kinds of discussions um, uh, speaking from the perspective of someone who's talked about that for a while yeah. great. Thank you. I uh, have several questions here from the audience, which pick up on uh, several of the themes we discussed. So um, in 1833, there was an idea that ordinary people could build their freedom and agency through wage labor. Another idea, I think that's what it says, uh, at the time was that land was available in the new world. In 2022, globally, is owning land more or less relevant for ordinary people to have agency and freedom? It's a great question. That is a really good question. Mm-hmm. Um, the first part, though, I would stress that 
wage labor wasn't about building agency and freedom. Um, it was about, you know, the, the, the ethos of, of working for wages, at least in the industrialized world in the 1830s, was about uh, building a sense of internal discipline, right? The, the thing that was most kind of, uh, that, that, that inspired the most fear, at least in the British Empire in the 1830s and 1840s, in terms of building civilization worldwide, was economic autonomy from people who were not wage earners. So if you owned your own land and you did not have to participate in the wage economy, you were not susceptible to all of the kinds of subtle psychological pressures that having to earn wages instilled within you. So one of the big concerns for British imperial officials in the Caribbean after emancipation was raising the price of land to the point where recently emancipated people, free laborers now, would not be able to afford it or if they were able to afford it, would not be able to afford the mortgages they owed on it without also working steadily for wages on sugar plantations. Mm. Right, I think that, that common ownership of land is a deep thread in European radicalism. It's a thread in all kinds of indigenous forms of, 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 of resistance, right? And so I think private ownership of land remains critically important to power in 2022, I think. And this is a question that I'm, I'm sort of torn about asking, but I think it's kind of the question, the elephant in the room. Is this a hinge moment? Are we in a hinge moment? How would you answer that question? <laughs> I mean, you can ask in 187 years, I guess. Um, if you had to guess. You know, if you're an undergraduate in history, the two answers to every exam question are, it happened earlier and it's more complicated, right? So those are <laughs> like, like, those are the two answers that every historian wants to give. Um, but sometimes there really is something new under the sun. And, you know, I, I feel like we are living in a world where a combination of, you know, ecological ca catastrophe, really rapid technological change that is increasingly driven not by human innovation, but by machine innovation, you know, machines improving themselves, right? That's, that's something new under the sun. And so I think we're certainly at a moment where we need to think hard about what, like, what does democracy mean uh, in, in democratic societies? And what happens when the will of a majority of voters, like that's what mass democracy is, contravenes the findings of experts, whether they're machine experts or, or human experts. Um, and what do we do in that situation? Uh, and that clash between mass democracy and information and, and scientific knowledge was present in 1833 for, as, as well. But I feel like it's, it's at a, a pitch and scale um, and taking place within a world of such intense, constant, exhausting interconnectivity that... I think is very different, right? We were always connected. The 1830s was an era of globalization, but so were the 1630s, right? The human beings have been communicating with each other since the origins of, of the human species, but we communicate all together all at once now. And I think that that is also something new. And I don't know if we necessarily know what the long-term consequences of having everyone in the world in the room at the same time will be for the future. Yeah. Sandra, the median? Maybe I, I would just would emphasize that I think perhaps in our world today, we have a slightly more heightened sense of uncertainty because we've seen 189 years since 1833 and some of the, the grand ambitions of that 
period and where we are today. But even then, I mean, you, you mentioned Pedrick Malthus and his pessimism about progress. Even in 1833, there were naysayers who said it's not all rosy and there are certainly, or, or we could look at Marx, for example, in his critique of industrialization. But I think that we have become a lot more skeptical about the nature of change and its ability to deliver on promises than perhaps we would have been in 1833 had we been there. And I would say, I think I'm willing to say this is this has to be a hinge period, simply because of ecology. We are in a climate crisis. People, as people say, each one of these changes, you could sort of see a shift and then some of it swings back. So some people say, what, pendulum on a cart, right? Where is a pendulum, but the cart is inching forward. Our cart's heading to a cliff. And I, I don't want to be depressing, but as a biologist and ecologist, there is no doubt that eventually we are going to have to deal with things in the physical world, which will have ramifications through all of these other aspects of our lives. And so the question is, where will we be when we reach the edge of that? Uh, let's hope it's a slope, but it might be a cliff. Let's Maybe. not end with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then, then a follow-up to that. What can we learn from 1833 that might help us deal with the possibility that this is a hinge moment? I mean... People living in the world of, of, of the 1830s imagined that they were, you know, all of these, we've, we're anxious now. Um, people have been anxious for a really long time in some ways. You know, I think that might be, uh, again, another good history undergraduate answer is there are no trans historical universals, but I think mm -hmm. anxiety about the future is a human universal. Biologically, we're identical to the people of, of 1833. And so I don't think we're equipped and intellectually, we're identical as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we're necessarily any better equipped than they were to deal with the anxiety of living in a world that seemed to be accelerating much faster than the world that they, that their parents or their grandparents had, had lived in. Final word to you, Sandra. And we haven't talked much about contingency. It sounds like the worlds that we have been discussing have been thought out by scientists or governments or states. But there's a contingency to all this and, and the ability to respond creatively, imaginatively, and hopefully to historical contingency is something to, to add into the mix. Sandra, Pedrick, and Pamedian, thank you so much for your insights, and thank you all for listening and for your questions. You. Much appreciated. Thank you. Ideas, you've been listening to The Year 1833, Evolution and Entrenchment. It's part of our series, The Shock of the New, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. Joining me were Median Andrade, Professor of Biology at the University of Toronto, Sandra Den Otter, Professor of History at Queen's University, and Pedrick Scanlon, Historian of Labour and Slavery at the University of Toronto.
tomorrow for part four of our series, The Year 1913, The World on the Brink. This series was produced by Philip Coulter, Pauline Holdsworth, and me, Nala Ayed. At the Stratford Festival, special thanks to Julie Miles and her team, Greg McLaughlin and Liz Thomas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.